Welcome, everybody, to episode 25 of the Light Shed podcast. This is our silver episode. I believe 25 is silver. Correct, fellas? I think it's paper. It's paper? Okay, let's no go idea. with silver. No, you're right. It sounds silver. better. It's I'm Brandon Ross, and these are my partners, Richard <laughs> Seth Greenfield. No, it's Scott. Scott, come it's on. Seth. Brandon, uh, last podcast, we talked um, about you going to Vermont. How was that? I see some screens behind you um, yes, of spaced uh, people. What, what Did you do a little? Yes, I wound up going to my first concert since COVID hit. Which What is was the last concert you were at before this? Before COVID? Actually, I know what it was. It was the... Fish. No, it was not. It was the Allman Brothers 50th anniversary show at Madison Square Garden. At was that? which I think members of the band got COVID. And I know a ton of people who were there who got COVID. It was like March 13th or something. And I probably should not have gone. Um, but I, w- I happened to be up in Vermont and a band that, yeah, I've been watching some shows on on YouTube and the other platforms called Deuce happened to be up there for a drive-in show. And I went and I can tell you that the experience is nothing like the real deal. Basically every car gets a spot and you're supposed to stand right in front of your car. And the PA is the car radios. So you could think about what kind of problems that would introduce because the car radios are often out of phase. So in addition to not being able to see very much, including the screen that's you know all the way down the field, you also cannot hear the music in sync. So I would say it made me sad more than anything. We did bring Scarlett, my niece, to her, to her first concert, and I think it was a good first show for her because she could just basically sit in the car the whole time. <laughs> Um, other than that, it was, it was pretty good. I don't understand why these shows, I mean, we have football games first. I saw them in, well, actually the first one I guess was in Kansas city. People wore masks. They were properly spaced or maybe not so properly spaced. Notre Dame allows their students to come into the games. I don't believe that Yeah, we're multiple weeks into this. There's been any outbreaks from this that people are wearing the mask. So why can't this um, process also be used for these outdoor concerts that you like to go to? Because you're talking about tours, and it's very hard to put on a tour when you only have parts of the country that are possible. Like if you can't do New York and California, and there's lots of places you can't do, it's very hard to organize a national or global tour without kind of full accessibility. And then add in the whole issue of weather, what happens? Like you can't do any indoor venues right now. Like it just makes it very challenging. I think that also the largest promoter, which is Live Nation, has stated that they're going to be ultra-conservative and don't want to be tied back to, you know, any kind of outbreak. This band um, had to follow Vermont's social distancing protocols, which happened to be pretty tough. They are playing, they're actually playing Halloween in Connecticut in a field. And it's this actually, this picture here is from, is from, um, 
another concert in that field where you could see they just have people spaced and off. I mean, that looks much cooler, right? Yes. I mean, as an experience. Yes. And, and it, it plays off the normal PA. But most of these shows have been drive-in shows, which is not something I would highly recommend. But I happen to be up there, leaf peeping in Vermont. And uh, they, they tweeted that there were a few tickets available. I saw it and uh, I wound up going. I don't regret it, but it's not, it's not the same deal, guys. It's not. Okay, let's go to the tweets. Our first tweet of the week, we're talking about, Walt, this was number two in our top 20 for 20, was that DirecTV and Dish should merge. Why don't you walk us through what's going on right now? Um, well, we don't know what's going on other than press <laughs> reports. I don't think anything is really going on other than AT&T has allegedly attempted to sell DirecTV to someone other than Dish. David Faber, obviously a very respected M&A reporter, uh, claims that AT&T wants no parts in talking to Ergen, which to me is bizarre. I mean, Charlie Ergen was involved in a um, in, in the Sprint T-Mobile transaction where you're talking about three or four parties, including regulators that had to all agree on something. That deal got done. And th- there has been some discussion of that maybe AT&T would use private equity um, seed control to them and, and like a multi-step process, either because they think if Trump is reelected that CNN will still be an overhang issue for them on a regulatory standpoint, but also because there's some fear um, in talking to Charlie. I mean, you're an executive of a $300 billion company. Okay, Charlie is a person that has gotten deals done before. Pick up the phone, call him, negotiate the deal, and get it done, or at least make the attempt to do that, to, to but- forego a share of the what we think is going to be north of a billion five of synergies that's that's the whole thing the whole the whole point in doing any kind of direct tv deal should be to unlock synergies and the only company that can do that is dish which by the way is exactly what any private equity buyer is going to do it's going to do of course the whole the whole so why give them this attractive to private equity and why they'd want to get involved is to add financing to take a piece of those and look you guys are both looking at you know when you talk about a billion and a half of synergies i think you're not even doing it justice because when I think about the combination, you'd be a company that would effectively be as large as Comcast. So you'd be essentially the largest MVPD in the country. And you'd have a CEO in Charlie or a team that's kind of run by the Charlie Ergen side of the world where they're far more confident in dropping programming, which could take the synergy number dramatically above a billion and a half. I mean, you look at what they did with the RSNs. EBITDA is doing great after dropping the RSNs. They lost subs. Not that many in the scheme of things, and EBITDA's benefited. So the synergy number probably is understated when you think of the fact that he's going to bring a reign of terror to programmers and how he approaches the cost side of DirecTV. And let's put some numbers around that, Rich, in that Dish's EBITDA margins are probably in the low 20s, excuse me, 20%. AT&T, which has a a subscriber base that's 60% larger, is probably 22 23% margins. Now, if you take all these cable analysts and even just talking to the cable operators themselves and they say, what is the implied margin of the video business within the cable bundle? And they're saying it's 10% or even less. So you look at Ergen and he's getting 20%. Why? Because of precisely what you said, their ability to be aggressive um, in terms of keeping those content costs low. So there's a lot of attribution in in calling it 10%. Because there's a lot of shared costs 
Um, but you're seeing what's happening as these video subscribers drop off and the broadband subscribers grow. So I think there is validity to that. There's cable one that has that shows what happens when you when you turn down video subscribers. So yeah, it's, it's attribution. Cabo also was very under or and is very undersized. And the whole point yep. here is that you're putting together two fairly large sub bases so that you have the heft to control. Uh, most favored nations clause. The problem with that, Brandon, is absolute best deals. And the problem that is that they've waited so long because of whatever reason that they're losing so many subs and Comcast is able to hold on to their subs to a better degree because they can bundle broadband with it that by the time this deal closes, they may have less subscribers combined than what um, Comcast has is going to have at the same time. So they're going to lose that MFN um, negotiating ability if they don't get this thing done. Time is of the essence. That's the takeaway. Verizon. Yeah, so this is part of one and the same. It happened this week coincidentally, but look, there's you know companies that are that are offering competitive broadband services and one of the criticisms of this transaction would be you know removing pay TV service. But obviously, if you have a broadband connection, you can get pay TV. Now, look, the funny thing about this tweet from Sasha Sagan for our, for our um, podcast listeners, he says, I got good and bad news. First, the bad. We churned hundreds of addresses through Verizon's home 5G address qualifier and found very few homes can get the service even where mobile 5G is available. My exclusive with Maps. So again, this ties into the U.S.'s decision to use millimeter wave spectrum in terms of the 5G strategy. And, and there's another thing brewing right now, which we talked a little bit about last week, which is the Department of Defense, which has a, a um, wealth of mid-band spectrum, is looking for ways to provide that spectrum so that we can be competitive with other countries throughout the world, including China. And, you know, look, this defense authorization, or I forget the name of the, the, the um, Defense Innovation Board. EIB. Um, which is chaired by Eric Schmidt you know, came out in, again, in mid-September and talked about, here's what we need to do in terms of mid-band spectrum. Now the DOD has a, re- a request for information. So here's Verizon trying to show you that millimeter wave works, but you have, you know, the preeminent um, people from Google who've analyzed um, a year ago or two years ago what it would take to make millimeter wave work. We're talking about millions of, of um, cell sites that would take forever while Verizon is cranking out and other countries throughout the world are cranking out macro sites on mid-band spectrum and developing an ecosystem um, for 5G. So I think it, it kind of ties into, yeah, 5G can be a broadband alternative, but not necessarily in the stuff that Verizon's been pushing, which is on this millimeter wave. But again, we'll see. This is, this, this is a new announcement. So, so at least for now, cable feels pretty safe. Sure. From a and broadband a, standpoint. Can I ask you a question, Walt? A, a novice question, as I usually do when we talk about your topics. Can can you explain the difference between this 5G to the home and the potential issues there with uh, fixed wireless in the late 90s when that when there was hope that that would be kind of a uh, wired home broadband replacement? Well, that speaks, Brandon, specifically to the use of millimeter wave spectrum. What, what you're referring to is Windstar, Intelligent, and, and the yeah. fixed wireless um, things that, that were pitched years ago that, that didn't work. Now, these guys would argue, oh, the technology is better, but that's precisely what Verizon's tried to do. Now, there has been other spectrum that's been talked about. CBRS spectrum is mid-band spectrum. Cable operators have purchased it. DISH has purchased it. Even Verizon has purchased it. 
it's mid-band, so it will not have the same types of physics challenges that those uh, millimeter wave or, or um, you know, fixed wireless access technologies had in the past. There's a company, Shentel, that just bought a bunch of two and a half gig spectrum. They're already extending it in rural markets and getting very good speeds. I mean, they're getting 100, 200 megabit speeds um, for their customers. So it's, again, it speaks to exactly this issue. What's the spectrum you're going to use? How much do you have? And can you get millimeter wave to work? And that's exactly why the government officials that recognize that China may exceed. Let's go back here. What, what's the issue? In the US, we did really well with LTE. So all of these applications got built on the LTE networks that were built. Right. So now everyone's concerned that's that if 5G network gets built in China first, all the best applications will get developed in, mon- in markets that are not here. So what the government's trying to do is say, like, how do we get that mid-band spectrum how, to you as quickly as possible? How do we be a leader versus a follower? Right. And for the industry, this threatens to change the structure of the industry, meaning that if I'm Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T, and all of a sudden the government says, hey, here's 200 megahertz of spectrum that we want someone to build a new wholesale network on, and Amazon or Google or Microsoft or Dish raise their hand and say, I'll do it. All of a sudden, you've got a now a fifth potential competitor in the market building out 200 megahertz of mid-band spectrum, delivering two gigabit speeds and disrupting the normal structure of the wireless industry, not to mention the impact it can happen on the cable broadband. SpaceX. Here's another uh, potential <laughs> competitor to um, broadband internet. And, and again, SpaceX has kind of been crapped on. And But, you know, look, there he... Elon and, and SpaceX and SpaceLink specifically is shooting up 60 satellites at a time. And now they're getting defense contracts. There was news this week about um, winning a development agency contract. So more military money coming in. And then, you know, I think a day or two ago, um, you have this tribe. So they, they've already started to launch um, trial service in, in kind of the northern part of the United States and into Canada. You have the Ho tribe basically talking how great it is and, and all of their um, the students that needed distance learning can now access that because of these space links. For a product that just two years ago, um, people were saying was not going to work. Elon was going to be able to put the satellites up, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And now you've got people literally tweeting about um, how it's, it's enabling people that can't be, that haven't been connected to broadband before that can be now. So let's, let's tie this all the way back to DISH, Right. <laughs> You've got spectrum. You've got new networks. You've, you know, now you've got satellite service. These are all ways that you can get video. So what's the, what's, what would be the regulatory issue with not allowing Dish and DirecTV to merge? It's absurd to even it's, – it's, it's even absurd to even debate, uh, you know, given what's happening in the video marketplace yeah. right now. The, the whole world has tra- changed dramatically <laughs> since they last tried this. That, that's the bottom line. It's changed so, in three years. Forget about – you know, know. like – so, so let's go back to the very silly. first statement then. Why is AT&T not talking to Dish and, we're, and, and like going back to the David Faber statement of like, oh, they don't want to talk to Dish. Why? It doesn't make sense. There's not a regulatory risk that's, that's clear. Other than CNN, which, you know, again, I think we've done a lot of regulatory discussions over, over the past couple of years. Don't think that's an issue in either administration. Um, First of if, all, if it was, I would just spin off all of Turner. That asset's dying anyway. So, like, what, you know, that, that shouldn't be the reason you don't do this. Yeah, especially given how this business is contracting and how we talked about earlier that at some point it's going to be smaller than Comcast. You're losing synergies by the day by not executing. Let's go. Get it done. Well, terms of cutting jobs, we've got Warner Media supposedly about to make a 20% cut, which 
you know, Walt seems totally logical. I mean, if you think about a lot of these businesses, they were designed for, you know, a traditional legacy media world of movie theaters and cable networks. And is if the future is HBO Max, and it, it feels like Jason Kylar has basically put his entire band back together. He's got, he just hired this week, JP Calaco, who was at Apple, but was part of the OG team at Hulu. He's, you know, Andy Forsell actually predated Jason at Warner Media. And on top of that, they hired Richard Thomas, CTO. And so it, it basically all just seems like Warner Media is trying to recreate kind of like the Hulu dream team and pivot Warner Media into the streaming future. But if you're going to do that, you need a lot less employees in those old legacy jobs. And so this seems like it was bound to happen. I don't know what even took so long, but you know, clearly this is Jason putting his mark on Warner Media. I mean, you're talking about thousands of jobs, so it takes yeah. time to analyze these situations. They're also yeah. integrating two transactions. We know that AT&T is not great at integrating back office, given some of my issues at being able to view Sunday ticket through a browser, <laughs> which still is not resolved. But look, on the positive side, getting back to let's get it done, like they're doing stuff. Like Stanky has taken over. Jason is, is, is clearly you know, playing a role, and they're trying to clean up the amalgamation of stuff that Randall Stevenson had put together over the past X number of years. What about the stores on AT&T? What is this so, about? So that's, I mean, look, this is part of the cleanup, but it's also part of COVID, right? I mean, people, uh, the lifestyles have changed. In turn, and again, for our podcast listeners, I apologize, but the tweet is AT&T is closing 320 stores. This is a mega trend with all carriers, postpaid and prepaid, reducing stores. Um, so what's interesting here is that, okay, this is, what does the post-COVID era look like? I mean, T-Mobile, who's been the most exciting carrier over the past let's call it four years. In 2017, the current CEO, Mike Sievert, wrote this big blog post called Long Live the Store and talking about how customers are still going to want to come in stores. But look, now T-Mobile um, is cutting their own stores. They're changing the distribution channels at, at Metro PCS and things change. And look, I but think when COVID people- started, when COVID started, I think you had made the comment that almost all phones, like 85% plus of phones were bought in a store. Um, that's going to change, I assume, or that's what we're assuming. We'll see. I mean, now? you know, it will be an interesting test case on this. I think if you look at Dish buying Boost, Boost was primarily in stores. And I think with the new hire that they've made, that what his expertise is using Amazon and, and direct-to-consumer type of distribution channels to see if that can expand Boost um, Boost further. But AT&T is pulling back. T-Mobile, no matter what they say in terms of their love for stores, there's been you know changes at Metro PCS and how they're compensating those those distribution channels. Um, so things things are changed, but look, people do still like to come into stores. Um, it certainly hasn't impacted Comcast or Charter in terms of their ability to grow subscribers on their relative store bases. Although Comcast would tell you that like part of it was adding um, some storefronts, but um, look, an iPhone is. is the pandemic changed consumer behavior. It allowed for e-commerce or catalyzed e-commerce to be for things and products that it wasn't used for before. And one of them is buying things like phones. And that's not going to change. Some people will prefer to go to stores. Others won't. But there's a lot of consumers that would never have done that behavior in the past, bought that type of item in the past online that will. 
I mean, fun. Apple tried to do this themselves in terms of eliminating the lines and, and you know, basically doing shipping the products. And it's look, it's very easy if you upgrade your iPhone to save the old one into the cloud and activate the new one. Yeah. With that said, the carriers will tell you people. I mean, look, the number of people that buy their phones at an Apple store is very low. And the carriers will tell you that people still want to come in the store and have um, a store clerk help them do the upgrade of their phone as, as crazy as that may be. But again, to your people point, are becoming more self-sufficient. Now. Correct. To your, to your exact point, like a pandemic can really change <laughs> yeah. behavior pretty fast. I mean, what was the tweet earlier this day? Microsoft is allegedly saying employees never have to work or come to work again in, in an actual office. I mean, Things are changing very rapidly, so it'll, it'll it'll be interesting to see how these distribution channels change for the wireless guys. So, just on saying on the topic of e-commerce has exploded because Brandon just mentioned it uh, this week. IGTV has expanded shopping, and so now you literally can just swipe up and get a whole catalog of what you see in a picture and shop right from IGTV. So it's sort of a product that I think originally people thought IGTV for Instagram was sort of dead. Uh, is now becoming a much more important product to, to Facebook and Instagram. And this is a tweet from the head of Instagram, Adam Masseri, who says, now you can shop right on IGTV. And later this year, we'll start testing shopping on Reels. And so, you know, I think we, we all sort of crap on Reels, but my guess is Reels is actually doing pretty well, given Instagram's I, focus on it. I don't, I don't know if, if this says anything about IGTV or Reels in particular. I think what it says is they want everything on Instagram to be shoppable. That that their number one priority is it's taking commerce. you from advertising to commerce and closing the loop on the platform, no matter what you're watching or looking at on the platform. But that's the holy grail of advertising. It is the holy grail. And Instagram seems like, in terms of self-contained platforms, the closest to getting there. Wasn't there a data point that came out this week saying that TikTok has overtaken Instagram as the number two um, app for teens or youth or something like that? There was uh, something talking about how it's just you know usage among a, an age group. I don't remember exactly what what the brackets was, were if it was all teens or not. But yes, it was yeah. that it had overtaken Instagram in terms of usage. Which look, you know, it, TikTok has clearly exploded, and it, obviously, Walt, to your point, uh, we have to sort of hat tip to you. TikTok still exists. Doesn't look like there's been a deal, and you know who knows. But certainly nothing's changed. Uh, yes, the blink happened. So let's talk about theaters closing. So just after our podcast last Friday, um, there was starting news started to break that Bond had been pushed by MGM, which was sort of the last major film. Regal and Cineworld, or Cineworld, which owns Regal, came out and said that they were closing all of their U.S. and U.K. theaters. AMC has said they're going to keep theirs open. I don't really understand why. There's nothing really to play. But with theaters closed, it sort of has forced uh, the last remaining titles either to abandon 2020 and push into summer uh, or even into fall 2021. But Disney made big news. This just happened over the last 24 hours. Disney's putting Soul, which is their animated Pixar film that was supposed to come out in, a, I think, early November. Uh, that's now coming out Christmas Day on Disney+. And it's not surprising. Um, you know, this is a title we were talking about just the other week, how they were talking about a theatrical release uh, on Dancing with the Stars and promoting the fact that Soul was coming out in theaters. But with theaters not opening or theaters closing again, that no longer is an option. The PVOD or the premium video on demand 
sale of Mulan certainly didn't work or didn't generate enough revenue. And so Disney really had a choice. They either delay Soul into next year and, and continue to sort of starve Disney Plus or they push it directly onto Disney Plus. And my guess is this is still an experiment. I don't think they're fully all in. I mean, they, they moved all their Marvel movies into mid to late next year. So I don't think this is a, a major strategy shift for Disney. I think this is, hey, we need content. The Verizon deal that you know we've been talking about in terms of Disney Plus starts to expire. Some of them may upstream to the Disney triple play bundle with Verizon. But I think this is about trying to reduce churn and keep people from leaving Disney Plus, especially after Mandalorian season two ends sometime in December. This is absolutely the right move, though. Um, we've talked about it several times. They have the chance to experiment now. They, yep. they have tried to experiment with SVOD on Hamilton, and it went very well. PVOD on Mulan didn't go quite as well. My guess is that this is also going to go well. And our hope you know, for Disney and sort of the path for us to get more constructive on Disney is that this will work and they will be willing to take even more shots on goal in putting premier content onto SFOD and make the Disney Plus service a little bit more Netflix-like. You got to also remember Disney's sort of under attack this week. I mean, you've seen the third point letter came out and yep. said, hey, you need to get more aggressive. You need yep. to be Netflix right after Disney pushed all of its films into next year. And so I think a little bit of this is also, hey, we are doing something. We're not doing what you want, but we're at least moving partway into the future with what we're doing with Soul. My guess is it, it isn't all over yet. I know that Disney changes very slowly and they're going to experiment and they haven't moved too quickly on pretty much anything. It took years. We'd like them to move very, very quickly. Very, very quickly, <laughs> like Trump would say. But but look, if this goes well, they're definitely going to experiment more, It probably in the spring, and let's see where it goes from there. I think your good friend, Professor Galloway, was also pointing out Please that, don't bring that guy up. Disney was going to attract an activist. I don't know if he was referring to Third Point or... Um, or others, but obviously yeah. they're in the crosshairs. And he points out that the stock has not done this well. This is a mild part, activist, though. I don't think they're... Well, maybe he wasn't referring to this, but obviously once once it's brought up, I think there should be more focus on a stock that may or may, you know, we'll see how it performs going forward. But like, look, if this is what it takes yeah. to, to move forward, then and the investments, that's where they need to go, then that's going to attract more attention to the company. You're right, Walt. And I think the bottom line here is this company, if they don't do what they need to do, like if they don't take the bull by the horns and like look at the opportunity in front of them, you need new management because there's a huge opportunity to pivot this company. And the more they sit on cable networks and rely on movie theaters, I mean, who even knows when movie theaters open, like are people even going to go back in the same numbers they used to? I mean, theaters may not even survive in the numbers they are today. So like waiting Waiting seems like a silly strategy, especially as Netflix gets stronger and stronger. I mean, we're going to watch a screening on Sunday afternoon of Netflix's Over the Moon. They're screening it for analysts. And Just this Over is their the Moon about watching that cartoon. Which are they going to let you watch? Are they going to let you watch the stream? Because I know you've been restricted from going to. No, no, no. This is, this is a Netflix. This is Netflix. Oh, Netflix. Netflix. I'm sorry. I confused my content. Oh. But of this course, is a if it was Disney, we would be restricted. Are you kidding me? Is, does Bob Iger take our phone calls? Are, are you still blocked on Twitter? Have you checked? Uh, recently? I am. It, it's okay. so it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Very childish. 
But I do think this is a big deal for Netflix because animation, feature animation, is the one place where they haven't broken through yet. And the fact that they're confident enough to stream it, I think, is really interesting, especially ahead of, you know, Disney Plus sort of not having a lot of content. I mean, I checked again today, Simpsons number one, Mickey Mouse Club number two, Moana number three. I mean, it's like the same things over and over again. It's just boring. Do you think that um, Dan Loeb is also blocked on Twitter? Any activist (laughs) that that wants to make a suggestion on what Disney's going to do is is also going to be blocked on Twitter? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. Uh, but they certainly don't like our suggestions, even if they would help the company. Even if some of them have actually occurred after the fact? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But why admit that? Yeah, why? Okay, let's talk Howard Stern, Brandon. Okay, so two tweets here. The first one came from Lucas Shaw. It was a Bloomberg report that Howard was close to finalizing a new deal with Siri that would pay him, he says, a lot of money. And it was reported at $120 million a year, I think five-year deal, so $600 million. But then I actually listened to Stern for the, I happened to be driving um, the next day and Stern um, completely laughed off um, that deal. He said, he said that if that deal was out there, where does he go to sign it? So clearly, I don't think there's anything even close to that on the table right now. He said nothing's been done. They're still talking to other parties. My guess is he will wind up staying at Sirius. I think you, there's two potential parties that could potentially be involved that investors have speculated. One is Spotify who I think intellectually, it may make sense for them to go and grab. It's a big name in audio. They've been trying to make splash. But Howard, to Their me, stock would go up for sure. Their stock would definitely go up. But listen, Rich, Howard, to me, is radio. He isn't podcast. And I think there's a distinction between the two. And Dan Eck is trying to build a podcast business. For Howard's show, the live elements actually matter a lot. You know, Robin does the news, there's calling components, so on and so forth. It the, doesn't have staying power in the it, same way. I mean, like look, you can't the, listen. The, inter, the interviews and other stuff have on-demand um, value, um, but D- Dan seems laser-focused on, on podcasts. He wants to own that category. It kind of reminds me of the, of the tunnel vision that Reed has had, right? Focus, focus, laser focus. You just want to focus on doing one thing great. And I think that a lot of investors don't realize that doing radio great and doing podcasting great isn't necessarily the same thing. And then I think um, the other uh, company that could get involved theoretically is Apple because they audio should be a focus for them. Especially with CarPlay. Yes, with especially with CarPlay, but guess what? It doesn't. It doesn't seem like Apple really is there. Uh, there's the app um, itself is still the same crappy app as it it's always been. They've invested pretty much. We're talking the podcast app, specifically. The podcast app. Yeah, yeah. Just they've, to be clear, yeah, they've invested zero dollars in improving podcasting, and yes, they do have radio. Um, what is it? It used to be called Beats One. I think it's called Apple Radio One. They're going to roll out um, more there, but it's it's all been music focused. So I think Siri's going to wind up with this. It's going to be a big number. And for Howard at this point in his career, 
I, honestly, it probably just makes sense for him to go to Siri. He can have a lot of flexibility in what he does. The Siri brand and Howard's uh, name are kind of inextricably linked. And last but not least, for Siri, I, they for the subscribers that they add, they're much higher margin than any than any subscribers that Spotify is going to add. Spotify's gross margins are like 25%. Series EBITDA margins are 40%. And that's because um, of the deals with the labels. They're just- 120 million is a huge number though. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is just a, a staggering number. number. I don't, I don't, I don't know that it's going to be 120 million. It doesn't sound that way based on um, what, what Howard was saying, because he was like, well, uh, where do I sign? Our, our podcast is clearly undervalued. Does Spotify um, have any content that people live stream or is it always just kind of time shifted stuff? You mean on demand, like posted stuff? No, I mean, just to your point, which, which is, I agree with you. That I have someone not is listened more... to anything live on there once. They don't do. Me, me neither. Radio. I don't think they do. Okay, they so are trying could... to be, they, their identity, their brand identity is on demand in the same way that Netflix's identity yeah, is agreed. on demand video. And That's so there's. It. So if there's no intention on them to switch that, because you could theoretically um, take your identity and expand it to, in order to, to create a more sticky user base. But if you're telling me that that's not likely to happen, then then I agree. But Apple actually is kind of tied at the hip to a certain extent with with Spotify in, in the car, meaning that you know you could also, Spotify is an app you can get on your CarPlay. Car so car like play. that's where you could do it if Spotify wanted to go that direction. But I think you're right. Like if, but again, I mean, has, has Siri ever focus. given, has Siri given any data in terms of people that watch or no, listen to Howard live versus nothing. nothing. The other thing is it isn't library an issue here too, oh, because sure. a, a lot of the content that's on um, Howard doesn't work that much. Howard 101 is just <laughs> library content. It's old interviews. Obviously, sure. they cut out all the stuff that... And that's not available. That's not available for Spotify. That's stuff that would work on Spotify. But it can't go. It it's is, a but, much longer-term deal. That's How do they get it? They could buy it for that. If you're telling me that the actual new morning content is not that great, then okay, then there, there you have it. Then the, right. the, the replays that they're doing throughout the day can just as easily be served up on Spotify as they could on, on Siri. I don't know um, what the deal is, <laughs> no pun intended, with with Howard's library and where it sits and how locked up it is. Mm-hmm. Because don't forget, it was all recorded on Sirius. Yeah. The only person that seemed bent out of shape about this was Barstool Sports, where Portnoy uh, was out Portnoy. tweeting that... <laughs> Portnoy's out. Obviously, uh, you know. he wants a, a new deal. And he, he's like, dude, I move markets. Right. And like, I only make, I make a very tiny fraction with a lot less numbers in front of it. And I have a top three show at Sirius. Yeah. And Erica was chiming in on that. By the way, good hire by, while we're on them, good hire by WWE putting um, Erica Nardini on their board. Uh, their board needed to get, I, I would say, a little younger, a little more thoughtful. <laughs> A little more dig- digital creative. Uh, okay, yeah. let's move on. We got Apple where you're sort of talking down their ambitions in audio, but at the same time, uh, everywhere we look, Apple seems to be making very serious moves on the video side. And it reminds me of when, you know, I, I stood up at the Code Media Conference and Peter Kafka was interviewing Eddie Q. And I remember asking the question like, 
if I look back at Netflix over the last four or five years, you know, they've ramped up from a three or four shows to, you know, you know, 30, 40, 50. I forget even what the number was at the time that I asked the question. And his comment to me was, you know, obviously I'm not going to give you a projection, but, you know, we're going to be doing a lot more over the next several years. And I think this sort of shows you, I mean, this slide is very messy to look at. It's got all the TV shows, series, and films and documentaries that, that Apple's working on. But it is a pretty significant amount of content that's coming over the next probably 12 to 18 months. And I just don't think investors or the industry is paying attention to just how significant Apple is getting in video. They're not, they're certainly not, I don't think Apple investors certainly aren't focused on it, but I, I just think like there is a lot of focus on the amount of content and what they're doing in, again, all ad free content. And right now, at what a $5 price point is pretty low. If I listed Quibi's content, would it would it be a similar long list? It would actually be much longer because it's oh, okay. obviously shorter. Are you, are, you making so the, a, are you making a point there, Walt? Well, the length of the list is irrelevant. It's how much of that is, is actually what resonates. good. Yeah, it, it's what resonates. Although uh, like you this can, Ted Lasso seems to really have resonated on Apple TV. So many people have told me I need to watch it. People have told me, in fact, that Walt needs to watch Ted Lasso. That I'm right being told... I think it's really good. I, I will tell you, but people are sort of comparing it to like the power of the office. Like this is one of those like evergreen comedies that is just going to last for years and years. Obviously it's early, but it's interesting that it's even being put into that category, but people are, you know, number one on this list that's up in front of everyone is this, is this show Tehran, uh, which, you know, people are saying is, I haven't seen it yet, but Hershorn and Sri Ram, like we've got a lot of smart people it, saying this is a must watch show. Is that a ripoff of like Fauda or I think it's like a better version of Homeland. This is what I'm okay. you know, sort of been told. Yeah, I, I prefer to rely on the numbers rather than um, whether Jason or Ross Gerber happens to think a show <laughs> is good or bad. Let's see how the numbers um, play out. Um, Will we ever know the numbers, Walter? I, I, well, that's a fair point, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> Very good point, Brandon. Um, but I will get back to you after my review. Because, you know, I've done fairly well, at least theater predictions. Yes. So once I get through Shit's Creek, then I will then move on to this, this show. And, and I will let you know whether it's good or bad. You're watching Shit's Creek on Pop or you're watching that on Netflix? <laughs> Netflix, Rich. Is that a joke? Rich yes. made a funny. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. Um, okay. So... The, the next topic is Netflix. We've got, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we didn't actually high profile this Australia. It's a, you know, it's, it's not one of the biggest markets for Netflix around the world, but obviously it matters. But prices went up in, in Australia by a dollar and two dollars for the, the higher plan. Uh, we now have just this week, Netflix raising price in Canada by a dollar and two dollars, depending on which plan. It all seems to lead to the conclusion that Netflix, it feels really good about churn which is no yeah. surprise given we're in a pandemic still and people are spending a lot more time streaming content and Netflix has a lot more content than everyone else. And with all the movie studios pushing their films out, Netflix is even more advantaged right now. And so it continues to sort of reinforce our belief that U.S. pricing goes up either late Q4, but certainly by Q1, which would sort of be the two-year mark for the U.S., that there's going to be a U.S. price increase in the not-too-distant future. Maybe it's only a dollar, you know, a dollar, maybe thirteen ninety nine goes to fourteen sorry, twelve ninety nine goes to thirteen ninety nine and what is it, sixteen ninety nine might go to eighteen ninety nine or something in that ballpark. Yeah, it's interesting because we had a meeting with Reed, when was that? In June, and I brought this up and he's like, You he's like, You cannot raise price during a pandemic. <laughs> and I was like, But there's so much engagement. 
I think now it, maybe it's that. So what do you think changed? I well, it's, I think it's possible that in I mean, retail spending seems very good. I know in certain markets. Well, first of all, the consumer generally generally seems fairly healthy. We're probably going to need stimulus to, to keep that going. Um, but also, market like Canada has done very well with the pandemic. If you compare them to the U.S., so maybe. He's said, okay, in markets like Australia and Canada, where the pandemic has calmed down, but we've demonstrated the value to the consumer, it's okay now to to go and raise price. I'm not sure what at what point he will feel comfortable doing that in the U.S. That's all. Video games. Yeah, I mean, look. This is astounding, uh, right? You got to read this, Brandon. I'm going to read Ryan Watts' um, tweet here. As if watching gaming videos on YouTube wasn't already big enough, YouTube search interest in gaming nearly doubled since last year. We're seeing a continued mediocric... Meteoric. Meteoric. Wow, that was bad. That was bad. (sighs) Meteoric rise of gaming video on YouTube. And look, this is a theme that we've talked about um, throughout the pandemic, one of the biggest beneficiaries and maybe the, the biggest beneficiary in entertainment of the pandemic has been video games. The stats we've seen have shown very little um, of uh, uh, decline coming coming um, off the peaks during uh, as lockdowns eased, even as we've seen summer, even as sports ratings have been crappy. I got a lesson in Among Us last night at dinner. Oh, you did? Nice. I did. But, I still don't I, really understand it, but I got a full lesson. I, ju- I just want to give you a couple of stats that we have here, though, on on what streaming video has looked like recently. So Twitch was actually down 8% quarter over quarter in Q3 which makes a little bit of sense, right? Because your Q2 was kind of peak COVID lockdown, but still up 68% year over year. And to what Ryan was saying, yeah, 68%. That's to what, crazy. And it was, it's been around for a while and we've never seen that um, kind of year over year growth in many years. Okay, YouTube was up actually 13% sequentially and 135% year over year. And then Facebook gaming broke um, a billion hours streamed in Q3 for the first time. So the gaming ecosystem continues to get stronger, whether it's in-game or at a game. And obviously those play off each other in a neat little, in a neat little flywheel. So the gaming ecosystem is very healthy. I think you're going to see that when the publishers start to report earnings in the next couple of weeks as well. And I think for Q4, uh, a lot of analysts buy side, sell side have kind of modeled, you know, other than uh, I'll say modeled in-game to to fall off a bunch, even as we have new consoles and we have new content. I think you're going to see numbers get beaten pretty handily in Q4. Talking of numbers, what's going on with these debates, Brandon? What, what, what do you make of this? I know you were interested okay. in this surge. Yeah, so... Podcast um, listeners, uh, what Rich has showed as a tweet is how debate numbers uh, have been down in 2020 versus 20. Well, no, this is... What? 
Oh, sorry. What are you talking about? This last let, let me read the debate. tweet. Let me yeah, read. Please the tweet. read the tweet. Sorry. Josh Coblin's tweet. <laughs> Justin, <laughs> last night's VP, VP debate drew 57.9 million viewers, second biggest total for a VP debate since right, 1976. Um, so the one that beat it was Sarah Palin versus Joe Biden. Right. That's what uh, I was referring it, to. Ironically was, enough. Right. Yep. That was the, the biggest ever. Um, and third, so this was second. And then third was Ferraro Bush in 1984. My belief is that um, consumers, viewers, Americans are more wrapped up in politics than they ever have been, are spending much more time thinking about politics, watching cable news, so um, being on Twitter, so on and so forth. Are you talking and, about yourself or you're talking about the American public? No, I public? am talking about myself, but also a lot of people that I talk to. And now I know that's a small sample size, but I look at sports ratings and, I, and we know already that they're generally down in election years. And my, I wonder if they're down so much more this year because there's just less time with people so interested in politics. I could be wrong though. Walter, <laughs> um, what was Come it up on. against? What was it up against? LeBron that night. Yeah, was there was there sports <laughs> and obviously NBA is down forty five percent. I'm not sure if that's because people are more watching CNN than. Well, if than, you watch Fox News, they'll tell you it's because they put Black Lives Matter on the court. Yeah, but maybe that's just because they're playing Among Us and they're playing games. There's so many more activities. There's HBO Max and there's Netflix and there's like there's so many activities. I mean, look, I'm sure politics is playing a role, but I, I wouldn't it's, overstate so then, it given how much if, else the competition is. If, well, if if that's the case, Rich, but they are going out less than they used to, so there is more time in the home. If that's the case, true. then you see this as something that is going to be really structural, and sports ratings are going to continue. Um, or will not bounce back from these massive declines because people have gotten a lot more interested in well, video well, games. 40, 40, and look, 45% is a big number. It's a combination of things. There are likely people that are not watching because of the social dynamics that have been pushed there. You can't ignore that. I mean, just look at... Well, That's fair. It's just what it is. What it, but there's also massive cord cutting, and you've got guys That's that are... That's 8%. You've got guys like Ergen that are, you know basically taking RSNs and moving away from sports because they've been costly relative to the bundle. So a lot of times sports can be background noise. Albeit though, Walt, those who (laughs) cut the cord are more likely probably not to be sports fans, which allows them to cut the cord. Those who are sports fans probably haven't cut the cord. So that 8% headwind year over year probably isn't 8%. Uh, but you're missing, like you're missing. There's years. a lot of casual sports fans. Like That's fair. when you, you know, like, so yes, the diehards are staying, but the casual sports fans, when they cut the cord, they don't stumble upon, you know, a, a, which is what a I was channel. about to say before Brandon had uh, interjected there, which is that it can be sports many times can be background um, for what people are doing in their, in their homes, particularly those that, that are getting measured that come up with these stats. And then the last thing I was going to point out is, look, there's a proliferation of content on apps. So like my TV, a lot of times, if you go into, whether it's the Netflix app or HBO Max or Peacock or whatever it is, once you're there, your ability to go back into the MVPD to watch any of these this sports programming 
is just lower versus what you were just talking about, Rich, and what I was trying to say before, which is that it can be, you know, sports can be a, a live background viewing. But, but Walt, isn't this what you see a lot? And that's what Brandon and I have talked about oh a lot, which God, is that when you watch sports on the app, it, you go to this commercial break. And because for whatever reason in 2020, um, the, the streamers haven't figured out how to, how to drop in ads, it's actually awkward. So if I'm putting background... Describe what's on the screen. Describe. Oh, sorry, for my podcast viewers, um, it, you, hopefully some of you follow me on Twitter because I go bananas on this a lot. Um, you know, when you're streaming a sporting program, whether it's soccer, football, whatever, they put this commercial break in progress rather than putting an ad load in between the commercials. And it's just awkward. Like if you have a background show on and it just goes, it just goes silent, it's just awkward in terms of television viewing. So have you'll you, flip to something else. <laughs> That's the bottom have line. You, Walt, have you, so you've, you want to see commercials you're actually begging for commercials now in that, just, it's just a weird experience I, to have these like coming back like, soon by the way what really annoys me is that i use youtube tv and it happens consistently on youtube tv and i'm like google is the largest yeah how can they um, figure this out advertiser maybe in the world right and and they cannot fill it, it's a topic for another podcast. It's Hold it's, it's a it's long not a topic for another podcast. Let's let's talk about it here. The other crazy what? thing is like this okay, is the one they, time they, you have the viewer hostage that they're watching a programming where they don't mind or they prefer to have that noise in between the break, and you're not taking advantage sports. of it. Yeah, look, it's look, crazy. But I want you to know, like, there's sometimes, and I'm not going to bullshit you. Like, there is sometimes where it's music. Like sometimes the music in the commercial isn't cleared for digital distribution and they have to pull the ad because they don't have the music rights to show it on a digital platform. Like it, there are levels of complexity that make TV in its current form a mess. Okay. Well, all I'm saying is that that is one of the multiple contributors that also could be impacting sporting Absolutely. viewing. It's a bad experience. Noted. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> We all hey, love that uh, we've got Roku channel now available on Fire TV devices. You know, the Roku channel, uh, you know, when we did a report the other day, we were talking about how the fact that the top five channels or the top five apps were essentially 83% of time spent on connected TVs. And it was Netflix, YouTube, Amazon Prime, Hulu and Disney Plus. You know, HBO was number six at like 1% and Roku channel didn't even show up. I think part of the reason is Roku channels essentially been something you only use on Roku devices. And so this is interesting that now you can get Roku on other smart televisions or connected TV platforms. What I'm going to be looking for is what's the engagement like? Like, are people using the Roku channel on Fire TV or do they use a lot of the kind of more native ad supported experiences like IMDB TV, which is obviously front and center because Amazon owns it. They have to I don't change know that how name. Oh I know, goodness. but I, but I'm just not sure how important this is. It's going to be interesting. Like, does this matter? Because it, it doesn't seem like it, it seems like you're fighting a lot of competition for ad supported apps within the Fire TV ecosystem. Whereas on the Roku devices, obviously, the Roku channel is very, very prominent. It's impossible to miss it. So I don't know how much this is going to matter. But obviously, from a Roku standpoint, it's a way of increasing the, the distribution of this ad supported app. Uh, let's move on. FUBU went public this week. Uh, you know, I think we were sort of surprised to see VMVPDs, which has been a struggling business model, 
AT&T essentially has shut down or effectively phased out uh, their platform. Sling, it's there, but it certainly isn't the growth engine that everyone thought. Um, You know, the real two major players that have been left have been Hulu Live and YouTube TV. Hulu with 3 million or 3.3 million subs. YouTube TV with somewhere over 2 million subs. FUBU with a few hundred thousand, now approaching 400,000 subscribers, went public this week, which is sort of surprising um, just given the scale of the company. On the flip side, I think they're trying to ride the Roku coattails of like, there's a lot of interest in connected TV advertising. We've seen Trade Desk and Roku be sort of defy logic uh, on in the stock market. My guess is FUBU, which if you watch their pitch, they talked a lot about advertising. It's still very small dollars today. But that's, I think, what is going on here. I think that's why people bought this stock on the IPO into the New York Stock Exchange this week. Is it pronounced FUBU or FUBO? It's, I was going to say, it's FUBO. Dude. <laughs> what did I say? FUBU, FUBU. Is, a cloth- is a clothing brand. I think FUBU but was... We, we love Rich, despite his mispronunciations. My mom mispronounces everything, too, so it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like FUBU as a better name. I think FUBU... Um, well, I'm not going to... Let's think. let's move on. Okay. Okay. We've got the New York Times. Well, the New York Times, this was, someone put up a deck. It was like 50 plus slides. And I just pulled out two that I thought were really interesting. And it basically just shows that back in the year. No, no, no. Somebody else posted a really long, very thoughtful deck. I tweeted out. um, I I should have put the name of the person that created it. I apologize. But in the heyday of print advertising, uh, sorry, in print, advertising drove essentially two-thirds. Actually, this is the year 2000. 68% of New York Times was ad-supported and 25% was subscription. Today, advertising is only 17% of the New York Times and subscription is an amazing 73%. And you know, we, we talk a lot about the subscriptionization of the consumer, Brandon, Walt. Like, this sort of just speaks to like the New York Times has done with no other print publication is done, which is they've made the pivot. Like they just understood that they had to change the business. Yeah. I mean, and I think their ability to do that um, speaks to also the quality of the New York Times content and or the, the brand fact, itself and the brand itself and some of the additional bells and whistles that they put on um, as as subscriptions, whether it's cooking um, or, or others. Um, I, I like which, the cooking out. <laughs> I know you do. So what what struck me about that, though, was someone had sent us Laura Martin's report um, on on Netflix, her very bearish report uh, the other day. And she said that people have subscription fatigue. And so that so they're going to cut Netflix. It seems like they're going to go to ads. They're all going to go to ad supported, go to ad supported. This is diametrically opposed to that idea. Right. And despite the, the fact that maybe we want to hear some commercials when we're watching sports so we don't have like a blank screen. OK, some background noise. Um, the trend has been we do not like commercials. The consumer does yeah. not like advertising. It, it just is what it is. So yeah, the subscription model right is now, clearly, and it's a much better business model. Look, there might be a rebundling of some of these subscriptions, but to argue that like there's subscription fatigue, I mean, I guess I guess as I would say, like I've said many times, the numbers kind of suggest otherwise. Well, when you think about the fact that as much as I like what Tubi's done and what Pluto's done and what Roku Channel have done, they don't register. I am the. 
they're not in the, the you know they're not in the top five use cases in the top five or eighty three percent of streaming time spent and the eighty three percent is not like it's not like That's it's right. going from eighty three down to seventy like the eighty three has been fairly constant even as you go across the pandemic so it's like there's no proof in the top can, five rich let's go through the top five again Netflix no ads no ads Amazon well YouTube's number two YouTube has ads obviously. Okay. Right, but YouTube, so YouTube is, is not long form, really. It's its own sort of thing, right? Number th- number three is Amazon Prime, uh, free. You know, yep, meaning essentially free to use yeah. and also ad free. You could call it S five. Number four is Hulu, which is you know part of it's a Hybrid. VMVPD, yep. part of it's a VMVPD, part of it's AVOD, and part of or AVOD with SVOD, and part of it is pure SVOD. So it's a blend of all three. It's a hybrid. Yep. And then last is Disney Plus, which is ad free. So. The overwhelming preponderance, over half of the time spent on streaming on connected TVs is ad free, just in the top, just using the top way five more, apps. Way, way more than half. I know. So that, that, this is ridiculous. Honestly, it's just ridiculous. Well, I mean, connected TV, though, is sort of a place where a lot of investors are making large bets. And we've seen um, stocks moving. Roku's up over yeah. 200 now. So investors it's, think that it's going to be here to stay the question is will there be enough engagement we or, definitely is there know enough tan is there enough is, is there enough right. ad dollars to well, go into we, this market what we do know is that from a brand perspective because of the death of tv they need to put those dollars somewhere and connected tv seems like it would be the most natural place to go but will there ultimately be enough good inventory there or is it these f- top five apps that are going to continue to dominate? Okay, we Could got you, two last. Hold on, no, go no, ahead. No. Sorry, hold on. Yep, take it easy. Sorry, sorry. Just a key question here, at least for me, is is um, so. Do you think that Peacock or Hulu, um, maybe not so much YouTube, but that they should just eliminate tiers that offer advertising and and just kind of rip the bandaid off and and say like look you know force people into this or not because those that are in the advertising may in fact have an experience that they don't like and and be higher churn so maybe you just move to you know a lower price tier to get or uh, or something um to get people off of you know, any type of ad load there's well, well let's let's question. let's start from a let's start from a high level there was a view back six or seven years ago that Netflix could never get past 30 million subs. HBO had topped out at 30 million subs. And the view was 30 million was the only was the universe of homes that would pay a premium for ad free premium content. HBO, now Netflix, AOL, there were so, right. there were a whole bunch of, I remember sitting in, in meetings with executives. Now you're at in the U S alone, probably 67 or 68 million homes with Netflix. They include Canada. So it can't give you the exact number, but it's high sixties have Netflix and they're spending on average in the U S you know, $13. And so the idea that, you know, you need advertising to reach the whole U S or to hit the TAM is ridiculous. The only reason to have advertising honestly is business objectives. These are companies that have lots of advertising clients on for, you know, for HBO, they have lots of Turner ad buyers for NBC, Peacock. They have all the NBC broadcast and cable networks, and they're trying to migrate those ad buyers and have them keep buying TV and not leave. And so they're wanting to say, hey, buy some digital here as well as buy some broadcast over here. And so they're using it as a way to not lose their relationships and try to keep their core business versus realizing in the future or to leverage it. 
it, because there, there is going to be expert again, there's see connected TV is going to take some share from television, no matter sure. what. Right. So 100%. for Linda Yaccarino, it's low hanging fruit. You have the relationship with the brands. The brands need to invest in digital. They're probably going to do some CTV. So why not do it with us? She says there's $2 billion sitting there. Who knows? So does that over the long term cripple their ability to compete with those that aren't um, don't have those legacy needs to sell across, um, you know, their multiple platforms? You know, the I think it, it you know, the, the reality is, I, I think the more you get into the ad supported, especially these hybrid models, I mean, first of all, I think it's very confusing. You know, there's going to be HBO free and HBO Max and there's HBO and the Peacock has a free layer. Peacock, a full, fully free layer. Peacock has a free layer if you have Comcast and then Peacock has an ad free layer on top of that. Like, it's very confusing. It's I mean, you just look at this. some. You look at the simplicity of Netflix and Disney Plus yeah. and Amazon Prime and Apple. You just TV said Plus, they like, can't get out of that model because they have to. They're selling ads across multiple platforms. So again, does that ultimately long term hampers them? It hampers them. It does, no doubt about it. Ticketmaster, Brandon. Oh yes, Jared Smith. Why is this a big deal? Um. What, 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 podcast listeners, and the, the big deal that okay. Rich is referencing is Jared Smith's plans exit from, Ticketmaster. from Ticketmaster. Yep. The tweet is Ticketmaster Global Chairman Jared Smith is planning to exit the company at the end of the year. Um, we had actually heard this, that this may be happening several months ago before he was actually elevated. Um, so I, I guess Jared has wanted out for a while. He's been there 18 years. So I, I guess it makes sense. But if you read the articles and go through what was said about that, the key line in there was that Ticketmaster is finally trying to bring together their international and domestic efforts, okay, which is a very heavy lift for them and something that has, should, have, should have happened a long time ago. The way Ticketmaster works is you have this host system in the United States um, we're really in North America. And then many of the international markets are fractured. They're their own ticketing systems and nothing works fully altogether. And because of that, right. And we've written about this in the past that makes for a much lower margin business than Ticketmaster should be number one. And number two, it makes Ticketmaster not as scalable. So when they enter a new market, instead of just sort of, being in the cloud and turning on the lights and fixing currency or whatever else you may need to do, uploading the seating maps for venues, they, they have to go in and buy a ticketing company and that really weighs on margin. So this is something that should have been done a long time ago. It is a very heavy lift um, in the near term. I, my bet is that they've already started this during the pandemic, but it's going to take a few years. And I maybe Jared just didn't want to um, to deal with um, that large of a project after being there for 18 years. What I will say is if they do execute on that, Ticketmaster business is going to look much better in three or however many years ago. Um, well, this would, this would seem like the time today. to put 
it would seem like this is the time to put the work in because you're not doing a whole lot of ticket sales right now. So like, yeah. why not? Well, the, why not take that pain the, right the now? The problem is you're burning a lot of cash, right? Sure. Um, so you have you obviously have limitations in the amount of engineering work you could do because you furloughed a lot of people. But those who are around may as well do something that is. Pro- productive and strategic to the company. We've wanted them to do this for a long time. I hope that that line about bringing together international and North America means this exact thing. And I think it may. Okay. So our last topic is TikTok, um, but really marketing on TikTok. And so my friend, Rachel Weiss, who runs digital marketing at L'Oreal tweeted out earlier this week, I'm often asked how brands quote unquote, get on TikTok. This is a great example. Pay attention as your brand can pop unexpectedly at any time and go for it. Reward your advocates and use your top employees as advocates. Duet. But remember, paying attention is a discipline in itself. And the video is, and I'm going to play it in a second. You probably have heard this or seen copies of it. This is the original. So this is the CEO of Ocean Spray using TikTok. I'm not sure why this went viral, but it obviously did. And we've seen a bazillion copycats. Uh, I even saw one with a Jets fan riding on a skateboard this week where they fell off their skateboard because it's obviously the Jets are horrible. But it's just interesting, like what goes viral on TikTok. And, you know, and she's sort of right. Like, you, you know, you play around with it and engage your engage and rethink what marketing I mean, putting TV ads uh, we all hate ads to begin with. We were just talking about that. This is a great form of digital marketing where I've seen an ocean spray bottle in a gazillion TikToks and there was no cost to TikTok beyond, you know, filming their CEO for 15 seconds. Earned media. I just think it's brilliant. I mean, I don't you know, again, I don't know exactly how you do it. And I, to her point, it's unexpected when it happens, but there is something to be said instead of spamming TV ads ad nauseum that nobody wants or nobody watches. Here's a great way to put your brand front and center and be part of the conversation, uh, a global conversation that you never could have gotten doing this on television. It's it's absolutely the best form of advertising. It's just probably the toughest to pull off. A year from now, TikTok comes back to advertisers and say, hey, remember all these viral videos that you guys were all scratching your head about, like how they became viral? Well, here's how we did it. And now, if you'd like yeah, your brand to be viral, like, all you got to do is pay us a couple sticks. national interest to China for some reason. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you asked the question, but like TikTok controls the, I mean, the reason it gets, it gets views and everyone talks about it is because you happen to see it in your feed. Like, so that could be because someone's pausing on it, um, but it also could be because they've got their finger on the scale, which they could do for advertisers if and when they want to try and crank up the monetization of what's going on at TikTok. As we wind down, I just have one more thing to say. Well, no, I think Walt's got, um, we do have sort of when this idea sort of goes off the rails a little bit for well, our yeah, last to week. The, to, well, again, if do the question is how do brands else? get on there? I mean, I think, again, Gary V going back to our Light Shed Live with him talking about, hey, he got on oh, TikTok we do have early. But here's someone that also, um, for our podcast viewers, we've got a, uh, a TikTok from Dr. Phil of ignomous fame for variety. I think we've actually brought him up in the past for some of the ridiculous things he said about colleges. Um, and I think uh, COVID. about COVID. Yeah. 
yeah, he was said things about BU that ended up not being true at all. Um, so, but here's him doing his version of it in a golf cart. Um, is he wearing makeup? I'm not sure, but drinking the <laughs> crayons, it just. It's bad. It's the definition it's bad. of it's, it's, it's the definition of jumping the he's, shark. He's terrible. Um, I will. And, say and this. by the way, TikTok, shame on you for serving that up in my feed. That I actually <laughs> had to see that. With, you with clearly the, your algo is not working. If you think, well, actually, maybe it did work because now we're talking. It triggered about it. you. It definitely triggered you. That's for sure. That is true. Oh, damn it! They got me. One more point on this. Uh, that yeah. Fleetwood Mac song, um, I think, has exploded on Spotify. Yeah. because of this and we talked last week about discovery of of music on tiktok and mm-hmm. on twitch yep. and and what that means to um uh to record music and here again is another example holy shit is that song dreams yeah what Fleet that song is number five in the world sorry number six in the u.s on spotify <laughs> that was my yes point, no, kidding. Oh my <laughs> no kidding no <laughs> kidding Oh and it's number crap. one on iTunes, by the way. <laughs> oh my God. That's okay. That proves right? the point. Right. Exactly. Right? So there you go. Incredible. Incredible. So I wanted I wanted to make that one point. And the mm-hmm. second point, um, for those who are not watching, and I encourage you to watch, except that I have a zit this week, which is terrible. So don't watch this week. Um, Walt has a beautiful mustache going on right mm-hmm. now. Uh, very French looking. What inspired you to have that mustache, Walter? I'm bored in the house. I'm just bored in the house. And I'm bored in the house. And I'm bored in the house. Okay. I'm bored in the motherfucking house. See, Brandon, you don't, this is why you don't engage with TikTok. I just sang a, a, a song that's been they reiterated on TikTok hundreds of times. My daughter has done that, Walt, for sure. And I dropped that in your lap. And you don't even know what I'm talking Get on TikTok, man. TikTok's oh, TikTok. I watch TikTok, but oh. I'm obsessed with cable news. Let's get past the election. You're on first. Clubhouse. You're on Clubhouse. All, I am on Why Clubhouse can't you do both? And, by Put the way, your cable news on and get your TikTok. Really, really good Clubhouse. I, I, I don't know. I'm like a, I don't know. I, I'm addicted to Clubhouse, even though I like shit on it. There were some really okay. good ones last. But do you actually we, watch? Hold on, Rich. I'm not done. Do you actually? This is our watch, longest podcast ever, guys. Who do you cares? watch? Can, listen, listeners. You know what? Put you your speed on 1.5, especially Rich. when Brandon's talking. That should not be an issue to like speed hey, through. Especially our when podcast. Brandon's talking. Hey, what kind of bullshit is this? <laughs> am, I, am I a slow talker? You're yes. more thoughtful in your in your discussion than than I am for sure. But look, you don't. How, do you? That, that's a you actually look at Tucker thing. when you're watching him, Who, or do you, are you Carlson? looking at your phone? I've, yeah, I, uh, I don't or whoever want to comment on some of some specific personalities. But this gets back to the to the, the I usually, void of for, noise for Fox News. Other than Martha, what mm-hmm. I do is usually I fast forward through them on YouTube TV. There's okay. other networks where I watch. But you're missing my point. When they are, you know, yammering about politics, are you looking at them or are you looking at your phone? No, uh, for Fox News, I usually have the fast forward up. I just want to know what exactly they're saying. So I'm like fast forward, fast forward, fast forwarding through. When I watch uh, like Rachel or uh, I don't know, some of the stuff on CNN, Um you're it's avoiding like the, the question more noise. than the candidates did the no, other night. When you're watching I'm, news, I'm doing other stuff. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, so get on TikTok. And by the way, this goes back to our earlier conversation about this pause in audio for these streaming of, of sporting events. If you're doing other stuff, you're, you know, you're looking at your phone, but when there's that pause, it's just 
it's an awkward, not continuous um, experience in terms of the content. Last night for the game, all of us watched the game on mute and we're on Clubhouse. So I was I was listening to the game and listening to Clubhouse at the same you time. Were? How do you do it? And I was working. <laughs> Sorry. No, you weren't. You were listening. You were listening to the CEO of. of I was. I was listening and, for and a little almost bit. Almost violating to, to, to the TOS. Oh, fine. <laughs> was that first of all? Did, did the terms of service mean we can't talk about what we hear on Clubhouse here? Because that was a fascinating yeah, discussion did we just by the CEO violate, of. E-Con. We didn't. We didn't. Yeah, we, I know. we didn't republish. Or we didn't like. You know, I, I don't know. Who knows what the rules exactly are. Well, contact oh, us directly if you'd like to hear with some fascinating things that we heard about uh, <laughs> gyms and the future of gyms in COVID. Oh, my Lord. Have a great weekend, everyone. That's episode 25. Bye, everyone. Later.